welcome everybody to another um, edition of Cornerstone, which I'm sure many of you already know, but it's um, our Sunday afternoon teaching. Uh, Ted shared this morning about the centrality and the priority of the ministry of the word um, that should be in, in uh, Timothy's life, um, but that's something that we strive for as well at our church. And Cornerstone is really born out of that priority, just to make available to the whole church and the rest of the church certain ministries of the word that were already happening, namely through our membership classes and also through our premarital curriculum. So today we will be going through Discipleship in the Father's House Part 3, which also serves as um, Class 3 in our membership curriculum. And particularly, as Mark mentioned, we'll be going over um, church discipline, but you know that is part of this overall umbrella of how to deal with sin like Christ does in his house. Um, so we will be going through those topics today. But uh, as we always do, um, it's another opportunity for us to hear from one another. Um, so just to start off, I'd like to hear from a few of you, just maybe one thing that um, you're learning um, and one thing that we can be praying for. So I am going to put some of you on the spot here. So hopefully uh, um, you're ready for that. Um, so if you joined on time or relatively on time, you'll, you'll be up. So uh, Arnold, I saw you join relatively early. So you get the joy of sharing with us uh, maybe one thing that you're learning and one way that we can be praying for you. Yeah. Um, hey, guys. Um, I guess one thing that I'm learning um, lately has just been um, learning just about God's grace, just um, how we're saved by um, his grace, not by our works. So that's been really encouraging, just kind of relying, just like leaning on that and um, just, you know, being able to understand God's mercy. Um, one thing uh, to pray for is, uh, I guess, just like work, um, just being staffed on a lot of things that um, kind of like weren't initially in my job description. So it's been kind of challenging there. Um, it's been having a lot of work. Um, so just praying for, you know, patience as well as um, just being able to honor, um, being able to honor them um, just as, as my employer. Thanks for sharing, Arnold. We'll be yeah. happy to pray for you for that. Thanks. All right. Uh, let's also hear from um, Eric and Elisa. I see you guys on there. So I don't believe I've called on you guys before, so we'll go with you and you guys can share together. I think something that uh, I've been learning is just the importance of staying connected to the vine, um, which is Christ. And I think just been, you know, humbled and reminded that I truly can't do anything apart from Christ. And I think that sometimes it can be very easy to just focus on, you know, doing things and getting things done. But um or perhaps even trying to find satisfaction in those things. But remembering that, yeah, like truly what satisfies our soul is Christ and his word. And so you can be praying for me in that way to, um, yeah, like just be faithful in abiding in Christ. Um, and what I've been learning recently as uh, I'm reading through the gospels and seeing how God's love is, perfect and uh, Christ is purposeful in um, his care and how he interacts with whether it's disciples or uh, other people. And um, yeah, just meditating on 
how uh, God is perfect in all of his ways, and including um, you know, uh, anything through my daily life or you know, through the challenges. Um, God is uh, purposeful through those things. And um, yeah, you could be praying for me that um, as I read through God's word, it's not just the act of reading, uh, but ultimately um, meditating on it and that, um, that I would be growing in and through my time in the Word, um, that uh, I would uh, remember even through my daily uh, daily life and through the busyness of work or you know other things that I would be meditating on His Word. Thanks, Elisa, and thank you, Eric. Um, and maybe we'll have one more person share. Um, Haley. I see you on the screen, so maybe you can share with us how you've been doing, what you've been learning, and how we can pray for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm so happy that I also got to see a bunch of you today. It was my first time being at church in a long time, so I think just through the past year and from being home to now like being on campus, I've just been learning um, a lot about um, Christ ministry and how, as a Christian, we are not to be fearful but our ministry is one that is bold and it's loving and um full of grace and so now like being on campus again and seeing um some of my peers I'm I've been challenged to even just min be ministering to them and especially now with like COVID and people having like different opinions about everything just learning to like stand firm in what I believe and even seeing it as a ministry opportunity and like why going to church is so important to me and why it's so important to be close to the body so I'm definitely thankful for that and I think that goes directly into my prayer request too is um, if you could pray that I would just be bold um, with my faith here at Stanford and um, be proactive in reaching out to others and um, yeah just that the gospel would be proclaimed where I am right now through me thank you for sharing Haley Great. Thank you, everybody, for sharing. Um, and I would love to open up our time in the word, but also pray for some of the requests that you guys have surfaced as well. So let's all bow in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord, for all the ways that you're showing so much grace and mercy to, to all of us, Lord. And uh, we confess that sometimes we may not see all of these ways and we may not explicitly thank you for all of these things, but we do know that you are our God and you provide so abundantly for us. And even the chance that we have to see one another um, and the chance that we have to hear from your word, we shouldn't take these things for granted. Father, I do want to lift up some of the requests that have been lifted up during this time. I pray for Arnold and I thank you, Lord, for the situation that you placed him in, even though it can be a, or it, and it sounds like it's been a challenging one lately at work. I pray that even as he receives responsibilities and things that he may not be accustomed to doing or he may not expect to do, um, that he may not have signed up for, that uh, his life would exude the gospel and that it would be a testimony of grace and mercy, Lord. And I just pray that this would be part of his testimony uh, to his coworkers and those he works with. Um, Father, I just pray for Eric and Elisa. I thank you for the things that you're teaching them about faithfully abiding in Christ and also the time that uh, I've been able to spend just in your gospel with Christ. And I just pray that um, this would be a time where they're faithfully abiding, not just when they're reading, 
but also in the day-to-day things and in the day-to-day actions that they have, that your word would be on their hearts and that they would meditate on it day and night. And that would continue to draw them close to you. And Father, I just pray for Haley. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that she had to um, to come back to church and also uh, the ministry that you have given her to those that you've placed around her at school. I pray that she'd be uh, bold with her faith, that you would give her opportunity to share the gospel with people. And we know that uh, not everybody will respond in the same way to the gospel, um, but Lord, you will do your work in those people whom you have chosen. And I just thank you for the ways that you're going to use her uh, towards that ends. So we thank you for all of these saints here. And I just pray for this time. May we uh, walk away from this meeting, having learned something and being convicted, convicted of something or encouraged by something um, in your truth. So we thank you again in Christ's name. Amen. All right. With that, uh, Mark, I know you've got quite a bit to get uh, get through today, so I'll hand it over to you. Thanks. Um, Let's see. I see David go there. David, could you do a scripture reading for me? We're all going to have a look, if you would, at Matthew 18, Matthew 18, and we're going to read through, in fact, the entire chapter. So, David, if you could read 18, 1 through 11. And let's see, Jonathan Park, if you could read 12 through 20 for us. Okay. Let's see. Who else do I have on my screen here? David, David, could you read 21 through 35 and bring us home on this? Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'll start us off, uh, Matthew 18, uh, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be um, to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Let's see, Jonathan Park, are you able to do 12 through 20 for us? I will step in and do 12 through 20 then, and then we'll get David Sue to bring us home. So 12, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the mm-hmm. 99? Do you guys hear me? I think there might be. We, we can hear you now. We've got you now. Jonathan, it sounds like you're coming in and out. So I think maybe I'll read 
for you. Is that okay? All right. Hello? So verse 12, what do you think if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought out, one was brought to him. Um, who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay, pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, uh, saying, pay what you owe. For this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went to, and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their masters all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you had pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Thank you, David. This is Matthew 18, obviously the latter half of Matthew's gospel, and it's happening within the trajectory of Matthew of Jesus going towards the cross and shepherding his disciples and uh, shepherding them at a time when they're kind of having a spat at the beginning. Um, disciples have spats, believe it or not. Church members have spats. Husbands and wives have spats. 
Um, you know, it's just a reality of living in a sinful world and being a sinner that inevitably one way or the other, there's going to be not just disagreements, um, but conflict. And, you know, the context as we look at this, really our focus as we're talking about Cornerstone is about building our lives, our relationship, the church, every aspect of our lives, our parenting, building it around Christ and his word, that he's the cornerstone. And I think that's one of the challenges as we come to this passage. Um, we tend to think of church discipline. We tend to think of sanctification. We tend to think of family relationships, often through the lens of our own experience. Okay. And I want to caution you, that's not to dismiss your experiences, to say that they're not valid or God didn't bring those into your life. But it becomes dangerous when our primary lens through which we look at or interpret the world and everything around us, including our relationships, is through our feelings or our experiences. And why is that? Because as we've learned, we are all sinners. And we see things, sadly, through our sinfulness. And, you know, that is exemplified many times in how we relate to one another. I think very few of us have grown up, shall we say, in Christian families. Let's go one step further. Very few of us have seen what it's like to have godly marriages or gospel marriages, shall we say, or gospel parenting. We certainly, many of us had parents who loved us, Many of us who had parents who really did the best that they could, given what they had, but we're reminded as we come to scripture, for all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's not to belittle or dishonor our parents, but I think we do need to step back, even those of us like myself who have had Christian parents, to say, look, there were varying levels of maturity in certainly my parents' marriage and their walk in Christ over the years. And I think, sadly, discipline gets a very bad name because we see it through that lens, many times through the lens of our experience with discipline, whether it was neglect or whether it was done out of sinful anger or whether it was driven by shame and honor. Okay, those are the whole sort of spectrum of our experience of how problems got addressed in our household. And I think what we can come and say is the way men solve relationship problems fall short of the glory of God. And ultimately, it ends up becoming destructive. And the two big ways that we tend to deal with things, and we talked about this, we saw this, how the disciples dealt with it after the cross. You know, when we come to something and a problem, we, I, we try and fix it. And if it doesn't work, we try and fix it again. And we try something different. And at the end of an hour or two hours when we can't fix it, whether it be a relationship problem or a house problem or a family problem or a child problem, we tend to either respond in anger and we act out or lash out and we can do that verbally or we tend to run and hide which is what the disciples ultimately did right you see that in the garden Peter cuts someone's ear off with a sword Jesus reprimands him and then later he basically runs away and the disciples run and hide you know and that's typically how a lot of relationships function that's how our interaction many times uh, happens. And, and sadly, that comes into play, not only in our marital relationships and our friend relationships, you know, or a friend relationship, something, you know, we can't get something worked out, you just stop seeing that person, or you sit on the other side of the church for a while. But, you know, it also comes to play, sadly, in our parenting as well. 
And I think that, you know, when we see that happen, you know, obviously it's very grievous and sorrowful because our sin gets played out in the lives of our children. And obviously that, that is heartbreaking. But one of the things that we have to remember as we come to Matthew 18, you know, and in a, in, in a, it's really, really important, is that Jesus came and died for us on the cross because we couldn't save ourselves and we couldn't fix our sin problem ourselves. If, if we could fix our sin problems ourselves, if we could fix our marital problems ourselves, if we could fix our friend problems ourselves, our work problems ourselves, he wouldn't have had to come and die. It's as simple as that. Okay, and, and, and when we go down that man-centered route of trying to fix everything ourselves, okay, and, and I want to warn you, because even some of the skills we learn in Scripture, and we're going to consider that today, can be taken out of context, whether it be discipline or peacemaker or any number of different things. When it's taken and stripped from Christ and the gospel, it can become very man-centered, very legalistic, and very abusive. Because Christ is the one who saves us. We don't save ourselves. Okay. And I think that's one of the challenges as we come and address this topic uh, in Matthew 18. And, and many of us have had bad experiences in churches is because it's been abused in churches as well. Because Christ is removed. And when you remove Christ, you remove his truth and grace in any aspect, in any endeavor. And what Christ came, he came to save us, to seek and save the lost, which is us. And he did so to bring us into his family. And that's what we're talking about. The church is the household of God. We belong to Christ. We belong to Christ because he purchased us with his blood and forgave our sins. So the entirety of our life belongs to him. And he brings us into his family. And one of the reasons he brings us into his family is out of love for the Father, the Spirit, and us. It's out of love. He brings us into his family so that we would know what a gospel family truly is. And one of the things that he shows us or brings us into is to show us what a gospel father is like. And I'm going to push this point a little bit for us to consider. Ultimately, we've been given in Christ a perfect father, but there's only one perfect father, and that is our father in heaven. But we have a perfect father in heaven who loves us perfectly and has perfect desires for us. And it becomes dangerous when we start to look at him through the lens of our parents. Okay. When we start to say, okay, God's like this, God's like this, God's like this, based on my experience with my parents. No, the Lord wants it the other way around, that we would really know what perfect and true love is through the gospel and that we would learn what perfect and true parenthood is through the Father's relationship with the Son. Jesus saved us to bring us into this relationship so that we would know what a perfect relationship with a perfect Father is. And he shows that to the disciples beautifully throughout the Gospels. And in Matthew 18, very specifically, he starts to show them what it means to have a relationship, not with an earthly father, an earthly shepherd, or an earthly master or Lord, but a heavenly father, a heavenly shepherd, and a heavenly master. And that really brings us to, to Matthew 18. And just to sort of retrace our steps just a little bit from our last session together, our heavenly father's desire for us and the desire for his household as his children, as his sheep, 
and yes, as his slaves and servants, is that we would grow in him, okay? His desire for us is that we would grow up, that we wouldn't remain immature and stay in diapers forever, but that we would grow in Christ, that we would grow in our love for Christ, and that we would grow to become like Christ, okay? He's the focal point. That's the focal point and direction. But the sweet thing is God has given us everything we need in the gospel and in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to do that, to grow, okay? And the ultimate big picture, John 15 Ephesians vision for what does that look like? Well, obviously it looks like Jesus, but in the local church, it looks like unity and holiness in Christ, that there is a unity and purity in our relationships, both vertically and horizontally. And you're going to see this throughout all of Matthew 18. And this is where we typically can get into trouble. Sometimes we focus on the horizontal relationship, the relationship between a husband and a wife or a brother and a sister. But we forget about the vertical relationship between us and God. Sometimes we focus entirely on the vertical relationship. Okay, I'm going to spend an hour each day reading my Bible, but there's no obedience and nothing's carried out in relationship to my wife or to my brothers and sisters in Christ. But the growth that Christ gives us when we are truly growing in Christ, or as Elisa pointed out, abiding in the vine, when we're growing in the word of God as God designed, you will see that there is both a vertical growth and a horizontal growth, okay? And there's a growth in unity and holiness vertically with the Lord, but also with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's 1 John. 1 John brings all these tests of true love and fellowship, and it demonstrates, look, if I hate my brother, I can't say I'm walking with the Lord. If I love the world, and I'm a really worldly person, and I love the things of the world, and I'm getting sad or upset because I'm not getting the things I want in the world, okay, I can't come to you and tell you, oh, I'm really growing in my relationship with Christ, my, my vertical, okay? The horizontal, many times, are the symptoms that demonstrate what the nature of that vertical relationship is like. My relationship with Christ is demonstrated in or, or manifest or plays out in the way in which I interact with my brothers and sisters in Christ, with my family members, and then by extension, the world. Okay? And this, obviously, as we look at Jesus, this is what sets Jesus apart as the Son of God. Who had that type of relationship with the disciples, with the world, with sinners, with people who hated him and despised him and reviled him, but he did not revile in return. He did not insist on his rights. He did not press. But instead, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he pointed them to the word of God. Well, that's Jesus beautifully with this beautiful relationship with the Father and the Spirit that we see played out in a perfect and holy love, even for his enemies, okay? And, and, and so we of all people, when Christ is our treasure and we're growing in Christ, we see, wow, that is manifested in a power and ability to deal with conflicts and disagreements and sin in the church because we're sinners, and to have triumph over sin, death, and unbelief because Christ is alive in us, okay? He's present, and the desire is, okay, that we will grow, and that will grow and grow, and we will grow up, okay, into maturity, and so we, we're talking about very specifically, okay, if we're going to narrow it down within the household of God, within the church, 
And as you see, there's no other place where this growth is gonna happen. It's not gonna happen with me as a believer by myself on a beach somewhere. God's provision for our growth is Christ himself. It's the crucified and resurrected Lord. And that means it includes his spirit, okay? And Ephesians talks about that, his Holy Spirit in us that convicts us of sin, okay? That when a husband says something unkind to his wife or a wife says something unkind to her husband and she's a believer and she's convicted that what she has done is wrong and she needs to ask the Lord for forgiveness and her spouse for forgiveness, where does that come from? It doesn't come from the world. The world says rationalize, blame shift, get as far away from it as possible. Just don't talk about it. Don't deal with it or lash out and don't forgive. No, that comes from the Holy Spirit. So his provision is he's given us his spirit if we truly belong to him. He's given us his word. His word spells out specifically and teaches us how Jesus calls us to relate to our father in heaven. That's the Lord's prayer in particular, and how we're to relate to one another, right? Ephesians 4 and 5 walks us through how husbands are to interact with their wives and how wives are to interact with their husbands, okay? So his spirit, his work, his church, right? His local church, that includes the shepherds in the local church. God has put the shepherds in the local church, Ephesians 4, to equip you for the work of ministry, to speak the truth in love. I learned how to speak to my wife from older godly men. Most of them were at Grace Community Church. They were 20 or 30 years ahead of me, okay? They walked me through Stuart Scott's exemplary husband. They talked to me, they showed me the language of, of they connected the dots between problems or disagreements I had and how to articulate them in a gospel and kind and loving way that came from the word of God rather than what I'd grown up with or what I'd seen in the world. And let me just say, if you're having problems, brothers and sisters, God has given his spirit and his word, and he's given his church to you. Go quickly to those places, his spirit. Just go to Christ if you're stuck in a conflict and say, Jesus, would you show me how to resolve this? Where am I at fault? To go to his word and open it up to the passages that you know and read through. When Julie and I have disagreements, there's a portion of scripture I go to on a regular basis. I go to Ephesians 4. I go to Ephesians 4 at the beginning and read at the beginning to be eager to pursue unity in a spirit of gentleness and humility. Whether she's at fault or I'm at fault, the bottom line is, as I read those words, the spirit works in my heart and says, look, there's something really important here. And it's far more important of whether I'm right or wrong. It's the unity of the spirit that Christ has given Julie and I in our home. And that extends too in my interactions with the elders and that also within the context of the members of the church that presses me onwards to do some of the hard things, to talk to people about hard things that honestly, I'd rather not talk to them about. My life is easier without doing it. And that's one of the reasons we don't engage in these things. It's the flesh, it's selfishness. It's say, you know, if I don't have to tell someone they've got food in their teeth, I don't feel bad, they don't feel bad, we can live like that forever right? But you know, husbands and wives, when our wives love us and they tell us your tie isn't straight, you're, you're wearing the wrong socks, that's a kindness to us, okay? It's done in a spirit of love, okay? His spirit, his word, his church, but within that context, Christ's repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. Christ's repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name. 
and obedience to his word. Okay, it gets very specific. We've gone from very broad to very specific. The path that the spirit and the word and Christ and godly shepherds always lead us to is to turn from our selfishness and sin, to turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins so that we can be forgiven, that there's provision when we've dropped the ball, when it's our fault, when what's been done, there's a way out. It's called the cross. We don't have to sit there and cover and hide and say, okay, well, I'm just going to pretend this never happened. You know, it's like we spill a chocolate milkshake on our clothes and it's like, oh, we slouch under the table so no one sees at the banquet, right? But, you know, with Christ, it's like, look, you don't have to do that. I have a completely new set of clothes for you. Just come to me and ask for help and say, look, my clothes are stained. I have a problem. Can you help me, Jesus? And you come to Jesus and he gives you a completely new wardrobe and brings you back to the wedding banquet so that you can enjoy the rest of the meal rather than slouching in fear. And that's true in our relationships with one another in church when there's sin. Whether I've blown it or someone else has blown it, God has provided an amazing way. He sent his son to die on the cross for us. Am I a perfect father? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. What's the hope for me? that Christ is king of our home. And so when I blow it, I can go first to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I blew it. It was a long day. I was tired. I was being pressed. And in my pride, my expectations were not being met. And I became irritable, which is pride. I became frustrated. It's pride. I became snappy with Julie or the kids. That's pride. And I can go to Christ and say, look, that's offensive to you. You've called me to speak the truth in love. You've called to me to be gentle. You've called me to be gracious. You've called me to put aside my own desires and expectations and to live a self-sacrificing love that gives my family Christ. I didn't do that. What I gave them was Mark Chin. So I can go to Christ and confess that sin and ask for forgiveness. And he gives me a new set of clothes and says, Mark, you're my child. I died on the cross for you. You've been forgiven past, present, and future. And we have unity in this. My blood covers your sin in Christ's name. And then I can go to Julie and the kids and I can say, look, guys, your father blew it yesterday. You saw his pride and you saw his sinfulness. Would you please forgive your father? Would you please forgive your husband? Because I'm a sinner saved by grace and I need Christ's forgiveness. And I also need your forgiveness. And then, you know, what's so beautiful about that in a Christian home is they see the gospel and it's Ephesians, right? Ephesians 2, it's the blood of Christ that draws us near. And what I have in common with, G, with Julie is not that we play tennis together or we like the same K-pop or we like the same music or the food or whatever. What draws us near, what we have in common as time goes on, is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, the gospel. And he takes two very different people. And you know, Julie and I, you couldn't ask for two different people but he gives us this incredible love for Christ and for one another. And, you know, brothers and sisters, one of the sweetnesses is he uses conflicts and disagreements in our brokenness, which the world sees as a flaw. And he actually uses those things and redeems those things to give us a unity with him and a holiness with one another that comes from above and not from below. Okay. Where does it all lead? It increasingly brings us to a place of obedience to his word. 
That's the test. That's not the aim. That's the test. That's what shows. What does it show when I'm walking well with the Lord and I'm walking well with Julie? It, it's obedience to his word. You look at my life and say, okay, this is what scripture says. This is what he does. That's it. Plain and simple. It's not rocket science. Okay. And I would say so often, brothers and sisters, we struggle to obey God's word. We say, people say, well, it's impossible. It is impossible. But what makes it possible? It's Christ. It's his spirit. It's his word. It's local shepherds. It's the church praying. It's brothers and sisters coming around us. And then we have the supernatural power of the cross and the resurrection at work in us. And it becomes very, very possible. And you see this in the lives of those who are transformed by grace. The elder and wife who, who just were an encouragement to Julie and I when we were in grace, the elder, he grew up in an alcoholic family. And yet when you see his marriage with his wife, you know, who's since passed, it's like, wow, you would never have guessed. You would never have guessed that that's what they came from. And yet we see the testimony of how the gospel transforms a heart vertically and a marriage horizontally, okay? Well, what are the things that stunt our growth? Okay, and this is important. We as sinners have to say this. What is it that stunts our growth as a church, stunts our growth as leaders, stunts our leadership growth, stunts our marriage growth, stunts everything? Okay, we've got down here growth killers, okay, which are weeds, weeds in the garden, my pride, my sin, my flesh, the world, the devil. But brothers and sisters, it's, it's us, okay? Our propensity and our pride when there's a problem is to think our problem is the other person. Oh, I'd just be so much more spiritually mature if my wife just got with it or my kids per behaved a little bit better at church on Sunday or the elders or the members or the people who are part of my small group. But the bottom line is what limits growth in the church is me, my sin and my pride. Okay. And if I'm not willing to let go of that and go to Christ, his spirit and his word, if I'm not willing by faith to say, Jesus, you can lift this burden from me, all right? That is going to drive a weed and a wedge. We read about this morning in Mark chapter four, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the cares for other things, it's just going to choke out, okay? The word of God in my life and obedience to his word and repentance, and it's going to turn my heart and my life into a sin factory, and, you know, the Puritans and Wayne Mack used to refer this as kill or be killed. Okay. Christ came and died so that we could belong to him, not the world and not to sin. If when we become aware of sin in our lives, we don't destroy that sin, that sin will destroy us. It'll destroy our relationship with the Lord vertically. It's going to destroy that relationship with others in the church horizontally. Okay. Church divisions, church splits, divorces, you go on and on and on. Okay, and as we come to Matthew 18, what the Lord sweetly does for us is he begins to show the disciples who have a very early spat. They're having a spat over who is the greatest among them. Okay, but at the end of the day, every marriage conflict, every conflict in the church, every conflict between a parent and a child, the bottom line is it's always the same conflict. Who is the greatest among us? Who's the most important here? Whose expectations and preferences are most important? And Jesus so graciously through Matthew 18, lovingly shepherds the disciples in a gospel provision to a deal with these things and to bring unity when unity is being broken by the weeds in our garden. 
we identify this because this has got to be part of every church member's life. This is not just the pastor. This is not just the individual. This is everyone in the church. Jesus wrote Matthew 18, not just for me or the elders. He wrote it for the disciples and he wrote it for every disciple. It's a part of all our discipleship. Okay. How do we pull weeds in our lives God's way? We've got two choices. When there are weeds in the garden, we can ignore them and pretend they don't exist and just go on with our life until the weeds get so big, we can't deal with them. Or we can look to the Lord and his provision of how we can pull weeds in the garden. And pulling weeds in the garden in our lives, in our marriages, in our ministries, in our worship, brothers and sisters, it's not just to sit back and let go and let God. This is part of a church's life, whether you're a good church or a bad church, every day of a church's life, every day of your life and my life. Do you get up? Do you eat? Do you brush your teeth? I, I hope you do. Okay, the idea of brushing your teeth is that there's bacteria that grows in your teeth. And if you don't brush your teeth, you're going to be stinky and nobody's going to want to be around you. Right. So hopefully we teach our kids, you got to brush your teeth three times a day. And hopefully you get in there and floss and use a little bit of mouthwash, too. Right. You know, because God has given you a great rack of teeth and you want to preserve that till the cows come home. Right. All right. Or even to the point where you say, look, even if you don't care about your teeth, do this out of love for the rest of us, because we all got to look at you. The idea here in our lives, brothers and sisters, and, and we need to think about this, is to look in our lives and say, you know, after Sunday sermons, like we heard from Ted today, about how we're to be progressing in gospel priorities and purposes in our lives. If we're not Every Sunday, as we hear the word of God, looking into our own hearts and like David in the psalm saying, Lord, would you expose hidden sins? Would you expose presumptuous sins? Lord, what in my life are you getting after in my life that you as a good father out of love for me are coming alongside and saying, Mark, there's a few things in your life that I really want to work on right now. And I want to pull these weeds in the garden. And I've given you every means of grace to do it. That, brothers and sisters, should be a regular habit of ours every Sunday and every time we open the scriptures and we interact, okay? I'm not saying we need to be Catholic priests whipping ourselves and going to the confessional booth. I'm saying we want to listen to the Lord as he shepherds our lives and he gets in gently and prunes us and grows us, okay? The remedy, brothers and sisters, is Christ's presence in our lives. This is why it doesn't happen if we're not reading our Bibles. This is why it doesn't happen when we're not gathering for fellowship. This is why it doesn't happen when we don't show up at church. When we're cutting ourselves off from all the means of grace, of course, these things don't happen. Proverbs 18.1 says, he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. The guys who I, I shepherd, you hear that all the time. I say that all the time because guys will disappear. They'll get hurt. They'll get discouraged. They'll have a hard time and you won't see them. Girls will do that too, okay? But I tend to shepherd guys, okay? And you just say lovingly, guys, listen, this is the time you need to be with Jesus. This is the time you need to be in the Word. And praise God, reach out to me. I'll pray for you. And if you're having a hard time, I'll do what I can to carry you. Why? Because he who isolates himself seeks his own desire. And you get further and further and further away from Christ and the cross, and it becomes more about you. And as you look at Matthew 18, I'm just going to try and divide it up fairly simply, okay? 
Jesus walks through in the beginning, in that very, very beginning, he says, you must become as a little child. He uses that illustration repeatedly. We've got a good father. You've got to become what you are, a little child in Christ. And we look at vertically, okay, conviction and confession. When Christ is present in our lives, we're going to be convicted over sin because the light's standing right there. When Christ isn't in our lives, when we're out there in the world, when we're doing our own thing, okay, yeah, the conviction is not as strong. But when we're walking in the light, boy, we start to see it and we just get grieved. You know, I, I heard a podcast the other day on church leadership that the elders and I are going to listen to together. And I was so convicted and distraught. I was like, oh my goodness, Lord, there are things that I need to take care of here. Okay, the word of God conviction and confession confession this is a work of the holy spirit in our lives it comes from the word homologeo it's not going to a catholic priest and just saying okay i'm guilty of this i'm guilty of this i'm guilty of this we live in a generation where people feel they just blurt out their sins it's gone that's not what it's talking about the idea of confession is that we agree with our mouths with the word of the Lord, what the word of the Lord says about our sin. Okay, there's no blame shifting there. When the Lord says, Mark, you're an idolater, or Mark, you're a slanderer, or Mark, you're a coveter, okay, or you're a thief, I'm like, okay. There's a reason, brothers and sisters, when you read the epistles, that Paul details sins. When he says, set your mind on things above, put off the things of the world, he lists them by name. And he gives them their biblical name within the context of the Old Testament law. Covetousness, malice, bitterness, envy, anger, idolatry, sensuality, immorality, porneo. He lists them by name. Okay? It's not that someone's coming out and trying to shame you because we already should be ashamed. It's we need to agree with God about our sin. As we come to him then and say, Lord, only you can forgive this sin. And that's going to extend horizontally as well. It's coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, look, I've been a coveter. There are things that I've aspired to that I haven't had. I want a bigger church or I want a bigger staff and I don't have it. And I've gotten bitter and upset over those things. Lord, covetousness has taken over my heart. I've desired something you haven't given me. Forgive me for that. And to have that burden lifted from me so that I can enjoy the fellowship and joy of Christ as my greatest joy and contentment. Homologeo, agreeing with Christ. And as you see, as Jesus shepherds the disciples, he does this over and over and over again. He asks these questions and talks to them to bring them to this understanding or agreement with how God views their sin, not how you view your sin, okay? Conviction and, conve and confession, okay? The call to repentance and obedience by faith, okay? He addresses this with the idea of stumbling blocks. What are we to do with stumbling blocks, okay? We're to see it the way the Lord does, that these things will destroy us. We're to look to the Lord for help, and we're to separate ourselves from sin and cling to Christ. Separate from sin and cling to Christ. To put on Christ and to put off our sin. What's the best way to put off our sin? It's to put on Christ. Okay, how do we put on Christ? If I have a foul mouth or a sarcastic mouth or a demeaning mouth, then I need to go to Christ and say, Jesus, I need your help and forgiveness. And then I need to obey his word 
And I need to be intentional in a Zacchaeus type repentance and say, okay, I'm not going to say ugly things. The only thing that's going to come out of my mouth are words that edify or build up or encourage. And I'm going to become known by the power of the spirit as someone who's an edifier, not a divider with my tongue. Okay. So we're talking about vertical. Call to repentance, obedience by faith, just following Christ's example. But that extends horizontally to church discipline, okay? If your brother sins against you. Now, hang on to that thought. We're going to get to that in a minute, all right? And today, there's an awful lot to cover. Let me say I'm going to aim to finish by 410, if you'll give me 10 extra minutes here today, okay? Jesus goes on in verses 21 through 35 to talk about forgiveness, because that's where this is going. Ultimately, this chapter, as he talks about a shepherd, come to seek and save that which is lost. When he talks about uh, church discipline, where is he going with this? He's going to the place of forgiveness. He's bringing us to the place and a framework with which our sin can be taken from us. And we don't need to live by that sin anymore. That's what the purpose is. It's reconciliation with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit vertically and horizontally. And brothers and sisters, there's never going to be any reconciliation in any relationship until our sin is addressed with God's way, not our way. Okay. And so 21 through 35, he walks us through this idea of being forgiven. And then in turn, forgiving others. Forgiving others is really the test of whether we've been forgiven, the vertical and the horizontal. If I've never truly confessed my sin, if I've never repented, if I've never come to God and say, Lord, forgive my debt, all right? And I've never known the joy of what it means to be forgiven, I'm never going to forgive other people. I'm never going to live by his grace. And that becomes the point at the end of the parable of the unforgiving servant is, you know, at the end, yeah, he's been forgiven his debt, but he has never truly repented. And he's never truly turned in gratitude to live by grace. And so he chokes this other servant, right? And the Lord in the end comes and brings judgment and throws him into prison. Okay. The idea of forgiven and, and forgiven is fundamental to the gospel on our daily lives. But I, I want to point this out. A lot of people believe this passage is about turning a blind eye. Someone sins in the church, aren't we supposed to forgive? Isn't that what this parable is about? We just let it go. We just let it go. No, the parable here shows forgiveness involves holding someone accountable for the debt. It involves that person confessing and agreeing and repenting of that. But then it involves the hurt person paying for that debt themselves. That's what the master does for the servant. How are we able to go and forgive someone else and release them and pay for their debt? We can't unless our sins have been forgiven and Christ has written the check. And then when I've been forgiven, when people come and do things and disappoint me and discourage me, I'm like, do I have any basis to hold anything over them when they come and ask me for forgiveness? Absolutely not. Because Christ has forgiven me of so much more, and he's written the check, and it's been paid for at the cross, okay? So I want you to see this, okay? This is in a nutshell, but brothers and sisters, we need to learn how to do this. 
the average church member who comes in and starts in, 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 in a typical church as a new member, they've never seen this in their life. And the reason it doesn't happen in our marriages, brothers and sisters, and the reason it doesn't happen in the church and nobody does it horizontally is because it hasn't happened vertically. When folks come in and they do not forgive or they remain in conflict or they insist on saying, I'm right, you're wrong, we're going to go our separate ways. What's pretty clear, the reason that becomes a test, we're not chasing them and saying, I'm better than you. We're saying it's raising a question mark, parable of unforgiven servant. Have you ever really experienced this vertically? And then we say we start to get concerned. Okay, in a marriage, the husband who will never say he's wrong, it's pretty clear he has not confessed his sin. He has not been a repentant person. He's not experienced the joy of forgiveness. So he's always playing with his fists up all the time and similar to, to, to women. And, and I think that's one of the things in, in church life is, look, we need to learn how to do this. And that's where a godly shepherd comes in, where we speak to a discipleship group leader or a godly shepherd who's been there before. And we can say, look, how do I address this? And they graciously and gently come and show us from scripture the language and the direction of how we can walk through this and experience forgiveness vertically, but then horizontally as well. One of the traps that happens is there are all these books and manuals, peacemakers, one of them, where people get so focused on, here's four steps that I have to do. Get the log out of my own eye. Okay, go and be reconciled, you know, gently restore. That is great. But if you haven't dealt with Christ and the cross and your father who's in heaven vertically, that just becomes a legalistic framework, okay, that you rush through. And all you're doing is you're putting a bandaid over because sin is never really addressed. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is God has given us in the local church and in our marriages and our homes a way in which to deal with our sin definitively. And so we see the vertical sanctification and the horizontal sanctification, they are never separate, okay? And the aim ultimately is Christ-likeness in our relationships. Last slide, okay? Last slide. And then um, I'm gonna take five minutes to talk and ask a few questions to a couple of our members here, okay? Pulling weeds God's way. If we as a church, and it's a church together, and if we as individual believers, are going to grow in Christ. Our sin has to be dealt with. Our weeds have to be pulled. And God has provided us a way. If we don't, we're not going to grow. We're not going to grow as a church. We're not going to grow in our marriages. We're not going to grow in our ministries. We're not going to grow in our relationships. There are sometimes are reasons why certain ministries don't grow. Weeds are not being pulled. And at the end of three to five years, the weeds are squeezing out. And it just becomes a legalistic program to do things, okay? We're just going through the motions. Where I'm going with this is you look at Matthew 18, especially verses 12 through 20. If we really say we're going to be disciples, if we really say we want Jesus to disciple us, we want to grow as disciples, okay? Gospel discipleship by God's design necessarily includes gospel discipline. They're related, okay? Do you want to be an athlete? Do you want to win a, 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 do you want to win a game or a competition? You're going to train for it. 
Do you have an objective? I'm seeing my brother David's face here, okay? Who's in the military. Do you have an objective? Do you want to be an officer? Do you want to follow a path? Well, there's going to be training and discipline that is going to be involved in that. It's not going to happen just sitting and watching things on TV. God has called us to be players, not fans. He's called us to be members of his family, not watching a sitcom. And so what we say is, look, brothers and sisters, if we're going to grow, if we really are serious about discipleship, then we need to see that discipline, God's discipline in our lives, is a gift of grace and is a means of grace. And his grace and care is one of the ways in which he comes alongside us and straightens what is crooked and removes the weeds in the garden so we can continue to grow. And this is true in a marriage. And this is true in our parenting. And you go through scripture repeatedly and you see this is one of the gospel ways in which God loves his children perfectly. Matthew 18, 11 through 20, you can read this later, Hebrews 12, Proverbs 29, but Hebrews 12 especially. But, you know, Hebrews 12 leads, leans on the Proverbs. God loves his children. It necessarily involves discipline. You know, one of my mentors used to remind me on a regular basis, he used to say, the people I worry about, the marriages I worry about, they're not the ones that struggle. They're not the ones that uh, have conflicts or disagreements. They're not the marriages that they're not some really challenging seasons in the marriage and outside of the marriage. The ones I worry about is where every time I interact with them over a period of years, everything's perfect and there's no problems. Great job, great house, great family, everything goes smoothly because it's contrary to what God writes about how he loves his children. How he loves his children, Hebrews 12, is he brings in seasons of pruning and seasons of discipline or seasons when he gets after us, which are hard to expose what's in our heart so that we would come to him as our heavenly father and we come to the cross and he would lift that burden of our sin and shepherd us and purify us so that our relationship with him is even sweeter and our relationship with one another is even sweeter. And the result and fruit of that, brothers and sisters, is a church that looks like Jesus. And because of it, it has a gospel witness. Okay. Thank you for bearing with me. There's a little bit more in this time. Um, I do, before I let you go, want to take, it's five o'clock. If there are some of you who have to leave, then by all means, feel free to leave. We're going to tie up over the next 10 minutes. But I wanted to, um, as I try and unshare my screen here. Um, talk to uh, two of our brothers, um, Tim Song and Kevin Al, who um, walked through a church discipline case uh, that uh, extended for over a year um, in its active course, at least anyways. And I wanted to just have them share just a little bit about their experience. And uh, Tim and Kevin, maybe you can ask you know, tell us and share with um, our Cornerstone group this afternoon, um, what was challenging for you to participate in a church discipline case? And you can give us the principles without having to give us the details. There was a member of the church who there was sin that came to your attention and you confronted that brother about that sin and that person did not respond well and was unrepentant, but you followed up. Now, uh, maybe you can tell us what that looked like for both of you and also maybe some of the challenges. Sure thing. Um, so 
maybe I'll share a bit first and then Tim, you can fill in um, some details on your end. So I think one of the you know, primary challenges in going through this process was that there was a good amount of discouragement, you know, and that was there. Um, it's not something that you can really avoid when, when going through the process, but it was a lot of it was just the discouragement of seeing someone um, refuse to repent um, over a period of time. And just to know and to see clearly from God's word that they're walking on a path of that's leading to their own destruction, essentially, and um, seeing them refuse to turn from it over time. I, I think that discouragement is what was just there throughout. And, you know, the, the hardship of, I guess, seeing and knowing the solution for them but uh, the, the fact that they wouldn't, you know, turn to that solution um, when it's when it's right there. Um, so I, I think th those were struggles and discouragements that I had uh, throughout the process and some challenges. I think, you know, when going through the process, there's always also a um, the risk of opening opening up yourself to um, accusations of being unloving as well. I think that's something that can, you know, that can happen. Um, not everybody sees church discipline as a loving thing that comes from a loving God and loving fa father. So, you know, when you're going through that process, sometimes it, it can be seen as an unloving thing by uh, someone who's going through that process. Right. So there's always that risk um, that you go through. Um, you know, I think just even logistically a, a bit of a challenge too, is that at least at the start, it can be um, it can be a little bit of a messy process. I, I guess at the end too, but um, it is a it can be a messy process. And sometimes, to our human understanding, things are not always necessarily clear. Um, you know, but turning to His Word and, and seeing you know what's in His Word, those things become clear as you follow God's process and those things. So, you know, those are some of the challenges that that you know I encountered and things that I learned going through that process. Thanks, Kevin. Tim, was there anything you wanted to add? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I echo everything that Kevin was saying um, as you know, we, we walked through that process together. Um, you know, certainly there were, there were discouragements along the way. Uh, but I guess, you know, since Kevin did share on some of that side, I could share on some of the encouragement side. Um, it, was, it was an encouragement to go through the process with you know, a brother like Kevin um, to keep me accountable in, uh, you know, shepherding and counseling um, this particular brother. And um, yeah, it really helped me strengthen my walk and also challenge me in, you know, um, in, I guess, exposing, you know, what areas of my own life that I was either trusting in my own words or my own way, as opposed to in God's way as he prescribed in Matthew 18 with church discipline. There were many times where um, the discussions that we would have sometimes came into just a bit of a back and forth in terms of, you know, uh, just our opinions and thoughts. And um, I was grateful and thankful to have someone like Kevin uh, to, you know, just bring it always back to the word. Um, and, you know, I also kind of learned that we always have to keep the word as the foundation of these discussions um, because 
you know, once it becomes his way versus my way or their way versus, you know, my way, um, it, it's an endless discussion and there is no solution, right? When you look at it that way, it's, it, it ends up as, okay, this is your opinion. This is my opinion, but we always went back to, okay, what does God's word have to say about this? And, you know, there's nothing we can argue against God's word. It's, it's truth. And, um, yeah, I think that was an encouragement to to go through that and um, yeah, really really live that and experience that firsthand uh, and to to trust His Word um, over my own life more uh, more deeply. So yeah. Well, thank you. Um, let me ask you guys this for for our church body here. Um, Look, a lot of people haven't seen church discipline practiced as it's outlined in Matthew 18 with the three steps that, that are there in 11 through 20. Most people haven't seen it hap happen in a family for sure. Okay. Um, could you both tell us, you know, in a nutshell, what did that process look like? What were the steps that were involved and how did that play out with both of you? Uh, as you saw a brother who was ensnared or trapped in sin, and you pursued him to call him to repentance and reconciliation with Christ. I'll, I'll uh, maybe share first. Um, so yeah, we definitely Matthew 18 um, was a, a frequented passage during this time just to, to keep us grounded in terms of what God's word said. Because uh, as Tim mentioned, it's easy to kind of go off on our own opinions on these things. But going through that process, it's a, it doesn't always work out to, you know, we see, you know, four steps here. That means four meetings and we're done. Um, there's, you know, when we come into it, you can really see God's wisdom because um, people don't come into it seeing the same thing all the time. Um, and that's natural. Um, you know, the person who the person who initially confronts a brother may see certain things and someone who's brought in later as a part of another step, they don't have all that information. Um, so it can take an amount of time to really seek unity in the Lord in that. And I, I think you can really see the work of God and the wisdom of God in outlining the process the, the way that he does, because it's a protection for the person who's going through that discipline process. And it's a protection for those people who are taking someone through that discipline process that there are these built-in areas where it's not just one person, their opinions, but, you know, multiple people always returning to God's word. And, you know, like Tim was mentioning, aligning ourselves to what his word says. So um, it can start off um, discerning repentance versus unrepentance. I found, you know, when I'm trusting in my own flesh um, and my own ideas, it becomes really confusing and um, unclear at times. But as we went through the process and as we continually returned to his word, his word proved true and his word brought unity and it brought clarity as we went through that process. And as we continued on, you know, things became clearer and clearer as we went through it. Thanks, Kevin. Tim, anything that you wanted to add? Yeah, I, th I think, um, yeah, it, it certainly, you know, this was really my, my first time going through, you know, a a formal church discipline case. And yeah, I, I guess I, I didn't really have an understanding of how long things could actually take. Um, in this case, it it took actually, you know, now that I think about it, for the first time the brother was confronted with sin, it took probably close to two years until we got to, you know, tell it to the church, right? Um, and so, yeah, like, like 
Kevin was saying it it was it takes multiple meetings right with with the individual then it takes meetings with the other people involved that are that are walking through this uh, with the brother um and so like there there was just always coming back to the the god's word and aligning on his word and where where we thought we were in the process and that was not only a protection for us it it is a protection actually for the the individual too that's interesting too because you know if you have one person or even just two people who are sort of colluding you know trying to trying to get this guy out of the church right maybe they don't like it or something um you have multiple members that are that start being involved in the process and brought in and they're holding you know those initial people that confronted the the, the brother um accountable as well so um yeah that's that's something that i i appreciated and really got to experience firsthand as well thanks tim let me ask you this if any of you were sick and you were single and you were living by yourself, how many of you would appreciate someone making a phone call and saying, hey, how are you doing? I, I would, you know, can I bring over some food? Okay. And, and I think we need to see within the context of love that what Jesus is describing, if we love someone and they're not doing well, we need to say something. We need to be pursuers, you know, and, you know, we say, okay, how many of us are without sin? Okay, well, if we all have sin, then sooner or later, if what we're reading is true, we're really going to benefit from someone who's going to come alongside and say, I'm concerned about you. Okay, it's not a witch hunt. The gospel framework is we're seeking a lost sheep who we're trying to bring back to the shepherd. And so step one, we can go to someone and say, or a husband or a wife, listen, I have some concerns. Am I seeing this correctly? And you get together and talk and say, do they share those concerns or not? It doesn't have to come and say, okay, you're in sin. It can say, hey, I've got some concerns. There's a pattern that I've seen. And it seems to be yielding thorns, not fruit in your life. It could be an anger issue, okay? It could be a sarcastic tongue. It could be something simple of just pulling someone aside and, and just saying, how's your walk with Christ, okay? And if we feel that person is continuing on that train wreck, then we can bring another brother in or another sister in and say, hey, would you mind meeting with two of us? Because we're just burdened for you and we love you. And we're concerned and we just don't seem to be seeing it the same way. And you're pursuing this symphoneo and homologeo that we can come on the same page. And if two or three isn't working, then we expand the circle because we want to honor the privacy, but grow in whatever's needed. And we go step by step by step. And we bring in the shepherds and we bring in the leaders at a certain point where we say, look, there's a brother or sister or my husband and my wife or my siblings. We're just, we're stuck. And by faith, we say, but you know what? Christ is the remedy and his word holds it for us. Are we willing to wait for Christ? And are we willing to do it his way? So listen, thank you for joining. Thank you for bearing with us for the extra 12 minutes. And I'm going to hand things over to Kevin. If you have any questions about this, and I'm sure you have a multitude of them, I will post some resources, Lord willing, on Facebook for you uh, to look through. And also you can follow up with any of the elders and the deacons or your discipleship group leaders to say, hey, I've got questions about what was addressed. And with that, I'll hand it off to Kevin. All right, great. Thank you, Mark. Um, so um, I'll go ahead and just close us off in a uh, brief word of prayer. 
And then uh, we'll have a portion afterwards for those who are actively going through the membership process, but for the vast majority of you, you will be free to go after. So let me just close us in a word. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word gives us um, insight and wisdom, Lord, that we would not have on our own, Lord. And it gives us guidance, Lord, that we need uh, in order to follow your path and to, um, to experience your blessing, Lord. So we thank you for giving us your word, giving us instruction. We thank you for desiring for us to, to walk in, in paths of righteousness, Lord. And I thank you for the church body, Lord, because as we walk this, um, all of us are sinners and all of us will uh, encounter sin. And you give us the means of dealing with that and pulling out the weeds uh, in our presence, Lord. So even though that can be a painful process, we know that it is a process that will produce the fruit of righteousness and glory for Christ. So we thank you, Father, for this time that we're able to discuss and learn these things. Uh, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.